The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, January 15th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I'm in Chicago, having just done Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, a very good show. I did not get to all my Al Jazeera jokes. So I found out that Al Jazeera was going out of business. I said, oh, this will be ripe fodder. Started writing a bunch of Al Jazeera jokes. Producer of the show explained to me, when the joke is that no one cared about a media company, therefore it folds, I'm going to say no one's going to care about the jokes about the folding media company. I just wanted to state that it was so darn surprising that branding a TV station Al Jazeera in 2015 America didn't appeal to your average middle American, especially when it's there on channel 436 between Hallmark Movies and the Latvian National Dog Racing Channel. You know, maybe maybe most people's first instinct, oh, something called Al Jazeera? This is where I expect to find quality journalism for an American audience. And the sad thing is Al Jazeera did commit quality journalism, but quality journalism is expensive. You need to have deep pockets to fund quality journalism. Now, the fact that Al Jazeera is backed by the Emir of Qatar, yeah, good luck with that paywall, Boston Globe, when the Emir of Qatar, NPR, with your pledge drive, you're going to get there where the Emir of Qatar couldn't. Oh my God, when you look at the other entities the Emir of Qatar does back, it's kind of depressing. I guess it says that funding a cable news network just doesn't offer the same return on investment as funding Hamas. Those were some of the observations about Al Jazeera I did not even get to make. I also didn't get to observe the goings-on of the Republican debate last night, though I came back to my hotel and saw it. So seeing Ted Cruz and Donald Trump go at each other, it's like watching a Bigfoot expert and a phrenologist doubt each other's credentials. I mean, they're on such shaky, factual ground, but man, are they fighting and clawing for that tiny little bit of land. And then there was this other specter during the debate, and we heard it, and I played it on the show after the State of the Union. Cruz said it. The the moderator said it. What about, what about Iran capturing these 10 U.S. sailors? And Cruz said he didn't, Obama didn't even mention it during his State of the Union. That's because it was solved within a few hours. Like no, one, no one sought or thought to mention that. And then Chris Christie criticizing Secretary Kerry for saying that it shows that the relationship with Iran is getting better. If you're worried about the world being on fire, you're worried about how we're going to use our military, you're worried about strengthening our military, and you're worried most of all, about keeping your homes and your families safe and secure, you cannot give Hillary Clinton a third term of Barack Obama's leadership. If you're worried about the world being on fire, don't continue with the administration that got the sailors out with a day. Stick with me. I'll I'll, I'll keep them there 10 days, two weeks. You know, in 2007, Iran detained British sailors, and they were there for 13 days. Although when they left, Ahmadinejad did give them suits, and rugs. I think these guys, I don't know, if you had asked the Americans, if you had stayed another week, another week and a half, would you want the parting gifts? They might say yes, not the suits. I mean, have you seen Ahmadinejad's suits? He doesn't even wear a tie. That's the kind of suit maybe you regift, but a Persian rug, that's nice. Although you regift the suit and, you know, someday your uncle's like, wait a minute, is this the Iranian detention suit? Yeah, it's the Iranian detention suit. Ah. Oh. So in the spiel today, we will take the idea of a Fox broadcast and talk about the time just a few weeks ago where they had on an expert after the San Bernardino shootings who gave advice on what to do if a fellow named Syed leaves the party. Yeah, we put it to song. But first, 
This is an old interview I did. It's a really interesting interview. I think it's the only time I worked through a translator, but it was really good with a North Korean defector. Yeah, because, you know, of all the trouble in the world, let's not forget that crazy hermit kingdom that says it has the H-bomb. Jang Jin Sung defected from North Korea, escaped really to China, eventually to South Korea. That was a dozen years ago. When he was in North Korea, he was pretty prominent. He served in a very sensitive military unit. The task that he was in charge of was poetry. He wrote poems in praise of the North Koreans. And South Koreans would read those poems because he wrote them under a pseudonym with the intention being that they thought it was written by a fellow South Korean who simply liked Kim Jong-un or before him, Kim Jong-il. North Koreans would also read those poems. That's what North Koreans do. Read a lot of things, poems, stories, and movies praising the dear leader. Jang Jin Sung is here with me today. Hello, thank you for coming. Hello. Hello. And I'm also joined by Shirley Lee, who is Mr. Jang's translator. Hello, Shirley. Hi. Describe to me the first time you met Kim Jong-il. Until the day I met Kim Jong-il, I really didn't think he needed to use the toilet because he was such a divine and sanctified entity in, our, in my consciousness. And when I actually came to, to see this man, he was the highest authority in our nation, the most revered man in our nation. And what really jarred in my mind was that he was wearing high heels. And my thought was, what, why is this high man, why does he need to wear high heels? And also his, his words literally become the law of the nation. What he says is taken as as the constitution and yet when he spoke in person because it was not for record he was just using kind of colloquial slang and mixing up his verbs and you know not speaking in the way he was supposed to speak as this godhead of the nation and and so ironically this encounter with god shattered my faith in his divinity and you write that he used coarse language he was stroking a maltese dog, a puppy. And I think that the army, the military had intended for you to be awed. But was that the beginning of you questioning everything about North Korea? So when I was called by Kim Jong-il into his presence, as it is called in North Korea, there was a Russian folk song playing at our meeting. And Kim Jong-il started to cry. He started to show tears. And, and all these men around him who were supposed to be the most powerful officials in the country imitated him. They started crying too. Again, another shocking shattering of the facade of here is this divinity. Why is he not only so human, but almost lower than human, almost subhuman, not, not maybe the right word, but it's why is he doing this in front of people who are already loyal to him? Why is he putting on a show? It felt like a show. It didn't feel, look real. And, and and that really made me feel like he had all this power in the godhead of Kim Jong-il. In that, in that system, he was all-powerful. He wielded power over these men. 
But in human terms, he did not have everything. He did not have that fulfillment. And, and, and it was just this uh, division between Kim Jong-il, the presentation, and Kim Jong-il, the man. You wrote poetry that would be disseminated to South Koreans, and the intention was they would be convinced it was a South Korean writing this poetry, and it would be in praise of North Korea. However, knowing what you know now, was that effective? Was your poetry, would your poetry actually convince South Koreans that it was written by a South Korean and strike a pro-Northern chord? By the time I entered into my profession, the because of the kind of economic differences, South Korea was kind of ahead in so many ways. And so the psychological warfare had been determined to, it, it wasn't effective anymore. It wasn't having its desired effect. So the very tools that had been effective before my time, it was the whole machinery was turned inwards. And so the intended audience for the psychological warfare became domestic. So North Koreans would see outsiders praising their leader. To this day, North Korea engages in propaganda And it's just a joke. I mean, we in America read these news releases and we laugh. Do the North Koreans think this is having any effect outside of North Korea? Do they think their propaganda works at all on the international stage? I think perhaps it's maybe people look too much at the propaganda as if it was the only tool, as if it's a matter of brainwashing, as if it's not having any other way of looking at it. But North Korea operates in terms of two fundamental pillars of control. One is physical, which is the surveillance, the prison camps, the snitches, the mass surveillance, so to say. And the other is psychological. This is propaganda, music, songs, the way from birth to death you have this as your way of life, your faith, your belief, your political ideology is to serve Kim and to die for Kim, as if Kim is your nation. And it's so effective in its mutual dependency. If you just had the propaganda, it would look funny as outsiders would look. But in that system of codependence, it's not funny. It's it's true. And if you if it's not true for you, there's terror to hold you back. So it's just this system that keeps it together is how it's not just psychological, but physically held together by the surveillance system. Do North Koreans feel repressed? They do feel repressed. It can't be otherwise. They're human beings who feel they can't maybe qualify or tangibly describe what it is that is not right. But the problem is that there is no alternative system or government they com- can compare it to. So for them, this is how the world is. How how can it be any other way? Right. They might say reality is a depressing thing. Reality is sometimes someone snitches on you and sometimes you get thrown in a concentration camp. They would just say that's called reality. Kucho. Yeah, Kucho. exactly. <laughs> Kucho? Kucho means like, Kucho, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, officials in the United States wanted to change North Korea, and they do want Kim Jong-un now to be out of power. What mistakes do they make in understanding North Korea that gets in their way of maybe getting Kim Jong-un out of power? Mm. We really need to separate the North Korean system from the North Korean people. There's a system and a regime, and there are human beings who are part of that system or regime. 
And until now, most North Korea policies and approaches have tried to change the regime, like make, you know, give it pressure or isolate it or sanction it or talk with it or give it incentive to change. And, and the whole point of this system is it doesn't want to change. It wants to maintain power. So w- what is really effective is, is change comes from below. That's what forces the regime to adapt its policies is, for example, marketization. It's a force from below. It's not instigated. The regime does not want to get rid of Kim Jong-un. It's, it's, it's not going to instigate a transformation of its system. It's only going to do that when it has an incentive to do so. And that incentive comes from below because those are the people it needs to keep in the system. Okay, but how do you do that? I mean, it's the hermit kingdom. You can't get information to the North Korean people. It seems like the hardest country in the world to foment popular resistance because, you know, as you know better than anyone, it's uh, shut off to the rest of the world. So, officially, Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, the Kims are the most revered figures and personalities. But in reality who is more revered than the Kims are, for example, is it the Franklin Washington, the president of America on a U.S. banknote hmm. is in reality much more worshipped than the Kims. The Kims is just like lip service. But with money, that's how, that's what people really cherish is money. North Korea is known to have nuclear weapons. It's scary. It's, it's a threat. But doesn't control the price of a single egg in its country. It's not. It does not have that absolute control that is characterized in in the in the popular mind. Is that it's got nukes? We can't do anything about it. And to to use an analogy to to describe how that is is kind of unhelpful, looking only at this this barrier, um, is if Kim Il Sung had full on Kevlar body armor, mm-hmm. and Kim Jong Il had kind of just on his front and his backside was just naked and vulnerable. And in Kim Jong-un's time, it's like he holds this small shield and the rest of him is vulnerable. And that shield is like the scary things, the nukes, the weapons, all all this, the isolation, the hermit kingdom, all these impenetrables. But in effect, people are looking only to the system, not to the people in that system who are already open to money, to to American dollars, it's 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 people are looking for the looking only at the impenetrables when there is a host of other openings. Having lived the life you've lived, gone through what you've gone through, is it easier than we'd imagine to control people's thoughts, or is it harder than we could possibly realize to control a whole population's thoughts? Mm. It's very easy to agitate a population politically. From the perspective of a regime who's got control over a society. Jang Jin Sung, a pseudonym because the North Koreans would still like to kill him. Jang Jin Sung, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And Shirley Lee, thank you. Thanks. Jang Jing Sung is the author of Dear Leader, Poet, Spy, Escapee, A Look Inside North Korea. And now the spiel, the name blame game. 
The killers in San Bernardino are unusual in that they are allegedly a husband and wife pair. Muslim, he boarded America. She from Pakistan. She lived in Saudi Arabia. Slate's Josh Keating asks, was San Bernardino an act of terrorism? If so, it was an extremely strange one, he notes. And that's true. Rampage killers working as a pair are generally rare. You got Columbine. A man and a woman together, rarer still. The jumping part of jumping to conclusions seems really important right now, but pretty soon the conclusions will be known, and then we'll all have to grapple with the possibility that there was a jihadist element to these attacks. Okay, but the real conclusion that we shouldn't jump to is about Muslims in general, or Muslim Americans in general. I think most media is careful not to do this. I think even Fox News is careful only to do this in kind of coded ways, but this morning Fox sought to explode the code. This is an interview with Fox News contributor and psychiatrist, Dr. Keith Abloh. As he shot up a holiday party, generally we think of holiday parties as, you know, revolving around Hanukkah and Christmas, and maybe he just didn't like that. Okay, you're a psychiatrist, go on. Right, the president wants to talk about gun control while America's bleeding. Well, that's because it's bleeding from bullets, and to clarify, not bullets that were thrown at or pushed into human bodies. The bullets were actually fired from guns, so that's why you'd want to talk about gun control. Why would the president want America to disarm when we are under assault by radical Islam? Interesting. Why? You mean beyond the fact that guns are a means of killing? Well, let's note that he is not disarming America, whether he talks about it or not. America is decidedly not disarmed. And still, the assaulters seem pretty undeterred to attack a fairly well-armed America. But let's move on. For you are certified by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. You know, uh, we don't have the facts. You're right. Okay, wait. Uh, ple- oh, no, 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 no. Please, please don't let this prevent you from saying some stuff. I mean, please don't rely on that old, I'm a journalist, I have to wait for the facts dodge. But as uh, a journalist, as someone who tries to put together stories in my office as a psychiatrist and make sense of them, the one that would make sense without all the facts would be something happened at the party that led him to say, that's it, I've had it. Maybe he said, why aren't we celebrating my holidays? Maybe this was a Kwanzaa-related killing. Go on, go on without your facts, doctor. Maybe somebody said something uh, that he considered off-color about uh, his faith, uh, and he decided, look, now it's go time. Listen, if somebody named Saeed leaves your party and people say, why is Saeed leaving? You know what? Call the cops. Wow. Wow. Listen, if somebody named Saeed leaves your party and people say, why is Saeed leaving? You know what? Call the cops. By the way, babycenter.com says that Syed is the 722nd most frequent name, higher than Amaro Ludwig. And Larry, more Syeds than Larry in the last few years. So there are quite a few Syeds. But know this, if you invite a Syed to the party, you better keep him there the whole time. Otherwise, 5-0 is rolling up. Wow. If Syed leaves your party, call the cops. How can he say... If Syed leaves your party, call the cops. And then I was thinking, well, maybe it's it's one of those sayings like my very excellent mother, one of those mnemonic devices. Maybe he's trying to remember major cities in Illinois. Syed leaves the party, call the cops. SLPCC. Springfield, Lake Grove, Peoria, Chicago, Cicero. Syed leaves the party, call the cops. Maybe he's trying to remember. He works on Fox, right? So maybe he's trying to remember obscure members of the Reagan administration cabinet. Richard Schweiker, Drew Lewis, Sam Pierce, Laurel Cavazos, and Frank Carlucci. 
Syed leaves the party, call the cops. S-L-P-C-C. No, it's probably, maybe it's countries we need to wage war with. Syria, Libya, Pakistan, China, Canada. Syed leaves the party, call the cops. But maybe this is more of a, a function of he's planning a party. There's so much to do. It's about, it's about hosting. It's about entertaining, you know, hospitality, right? And there's you, you, to time all the dishes coming out and how do you deal with every individual guest? It's hard. So you, so you come up with little, maybe little jingles to teach yourself. All right, what do I do? What do I do in this situation? What do I do when Syed leaves the party? When Syed leaves the party, call the cops. All right. That's helpful. When Syed leaves the party, call the cops. Here we go. When Mustafa's got a motor, when Amir's got a roll, when Syed leaves the party, call the cops. This is helpful. When Ali drinks some punch, call the cops. When Bilal asks for a second, call the cops. When Abdullah hangs his coat up, when Kareem asks you for a refill, when Muhammad got invited in the first place, call the cops. When Nasir compliments your tie, call the cops. Call the cops. When Syed leaves the party, call the cops. Call the cops. Keith Ablo thanks for your expertise, years of schooling and insight, and for teaching us when Syed leaves the party, call the cops. But please, don't jump to any conclusions. That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi, after being kept by the Iranians for 13 days, got a copy of The Home Game. Executive producer of Slate Podcasts, Steve Lichtai, after 13 days in detention with the Iranians, got to meet Chris Christie. Not quite sure how that worked. Chief content officer for the Panoply Network, spent his 13 days in detention with the Iranians, and then got called back as one of the semifinalists in Iranian Bachelorette. The gist. After 13 days in detention with the Iranians, we really came around to Lawrence Tribe's way of thinking. I don't think that Cruz is qualified to be president. You know, he was born in Canada. The Iranians really made me see the light on that one. Umpuru, depuru, dupuru, and thanks for listening.